If you have your Bibles this morning, if you'll open up to uh, Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4 there in the Old Testament. There are, there are Sundays when getting up at this point in the service, uh, you get this sense that the cake has already been baked and all you're here to do is put a little icing on the top. And that's been one of those days in both of these services. And I knew when we planned this service, I should have put Bethany earlier in the service because it was going to wreck me for what I had to do right after that. But I'm excited this morning that you got to hear both that testimony and that song and, and how God is, is blending these things together this morning as we, we're going to talk about defining moments in our lives, the, these God moments when God steps in and, and does something just utterly unbelievable. The, the moments you look back on and, and, you, and you go, man, if, if that decision hadn't been made, if that step hadn't been taken, if I had gone left instead of right, if I had zigged rather than zagged, where would I be today? And in those moments, you have this how can it be moment that, that God is so faithful, that He has led us through the, the darkest times and that He has continually reminded us of his steadfast love. And you may be in the midst of the dark moment right now when you're questioning the love of God, when you're questioning even the, even the, the being of God. I hope you'll be encouraged this morning as we walk through Esther 3 and 4. Before we get into the Word this morning, I do want to encourage you one more time. Uh, next week, if you uh, have not been through our Corinth 101 class, maybe you're thinking about membership here, maybe uh, you're considering that right now and kind of want to get a behind-the-scenes look at what goes on around here, uh, that's going to start next Sunday, room 202. 101 is in 202. That's how you remember it. It's right up there at 915 during our Sunday school hour. It'll start next Sunday. Uh, we're going to kind of pull back the curtains, and you can, you'll be able to ask any question you want to ask, see anything you want to see, and, and hopefully through the course of that, uh, God will confirm in you uh, some things about, about church membership if that's where he's leading you. So today, uh, behind the scenes, today we're going to talk about the defining moment of Esther's life. And if you know anything from the book of Esther, you know verse 16, 14 through 16 of this passage is the verses that everybody knows. If you know anything about the book of Esther, you know the phrase where it says, perhaps you became queen for such a time as this. And that's what we'll be getting to today. But before we get there, before we get to the defining moment in Esther's life, I need to give you a little bit of context. And it's going to take me a few minutes to do this. But you need to, you need to understand what led up to the defining moment. As you look back on your life, moments where you saw a turn or a change, where you saw God do something remarkable, if you were to look before that, you would see that there were steps laid out that brought you to that place that brought you to that defining moment, and those steps were not inconsequential. It was not as if God just showed up at the defining moment, but He was there all along. In the book of Esther, it begins in chapter 1 with a guy named King Ahasuerus. He is the king of Persia. He is the most powerful man in the known world at that time. He is the world leader. He is a prideful man. He is a self-centered man, and he is a very foolish man. 
can't seem to make any decisions on his own, as we see in these early chapters. He's constantly looking to his advisors who are constantly trying to manipulate him to get him to do what they want him to do, rather than doing what's best for the people that he's ruling over. King Ahasuerus is on the throne. And in chapter 1, we see that what he's doing is he is having a six-month-long festival. A huge feast is being had, and what he's doing is he's trying to raise support for a war that he wants to have against the Greeks. The Greeks were the second most powerful people in the world. A generation before, his father had gone up against the Greeks and, and, and had been defeated. And Ahasuerus wants to pick up where his father left off. And so he's raising funds. He's raising support. He has a six-month-long feast and festival. And in the midst of that feast, there was one particular night when he and his buddies had had a little too much to drink. And he calls upon his wife, Queen Vashti, to come in and to show off her beauty before he and his drunken buddies. Wisely, she refuses to do so, but it costs her her crown. He gets rid of his queen. He goes off to war against the Greeks, and he is soundly defeated just as his father was before him. His entire navy was wiped out. Most of his army was wiped out. He comes back to the capital city of Persia, the city of Susa, kind of with his tail between his legs, and he's longing for his queen it says he remembered Vashti, but he knew that he could not restore her to her place. And so his advisors step in once again and say, all right, king, here's what you're going to do. You're going to institute the first episode of The Bachelor. Now you read it for yourself. You'll see it chapter 2. Does this not sound like The Bachelor when basically what's going to happen is we're going to go gather all the beautiful women we can find in your kingdom. Here's going to be the three prerequisites for these ladies. they got to be pretty, they got to be young, and they got to be unmarried. Okay, If they fulfill those three prerequisites, we're going to go and we're going to gather them. History records that there were at least 400 young ladies that were brought into the palace, and for one year they were given daily beauty treatments to even enhance their beauty before the king would ever see them. And at the end of that year, with those 400 ladies, at the end of that year, he began one by one to take them on their date nights. And if you ever wonder what happens when the doors close on The Bachelor, I'm not recommending that show, by the way. Please don't watch that show. It's horrible. But it's so much like what happens here in Esther. If you ever wonder what happens behind closed doors, it definitely happened with the ladies that were involved with King Ahasuerus as one by one he tried them on for size to see who should be his next queen. A sickening process that at the end didn't leave them holding a rose, but one would be wearing a crown. And through this process, God elevates this lowly Jewish girl named Esther who was physically beautiful and yet unknown, who had been raised by her cousin after the deaths of her parents. She was an orphan. Her cousin Mordecai had raised her. She's brought into this whole mix of this bachelor-like scene with King Ahasuerus, and she becomes the one that he loves above all the rest. She is given the crown. And all seems good. Esther's on the throne. Mordecai finds a place of favor at the king's gate where all the king's business went on. Mordecai, Mordecai now has a, a good role, and, and he overhears a plot against the king, an assassination plot. At the end of chapter 2, that's where we left off last week, at the end of chapter 2, Mordecai overhears that two guys in the king's court are looking to assassinate the king. He tells Esther, who tells the king on Mordecai's behalf, those two guys are found out. They are hung on the gallows. 
And it's written down in the king's book where he remembers things. It's written down in the king's book that Mordecai saved his life. And that's where chapter 2 ends. And you're expecting that chapter 3 is going to start with the good news that now Mordecai has been elevated to an important position. But instead, his good deed goes unrewarded. And chapter 3 begins this way. Chapter 3, verse 1 simply says this. And after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted, you would think it'd be Mordecai, right? The guy who just saved your tail. King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him, but... Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And so what happens in the rest of chapter 3 is Haman notices that Haman, who is now the second most powerful man in the world, he is the right-hand man to King Ahasuerus. He has taken the place that rightfully belonged to Mordecai. Haman begins to notice that as he walks out into the streets and everyone bows down, there's one guy in the back of the crowd that never bows down. He learns that his name is Mordecai and that he is a Jew and that he is demonstrating civil disobedience in his activities. He will not bow down to Haman and Haman is filled with rage. One of the questions that emerges in chapter 3 is, why won't Mordecai bow down to Haman? But then the bigger question is, why does Haman react the way he does? Because it says there in chapter 3 that when Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down to him... He purposed in his heart not just to destroy Mordecai, but that he would destroy all of Mordecai's people. History tells us that in the kingdom of Persia, there would have been somewhere in the realm of 15 million Jews. 15 million Jews in the kingdom of Persia. And because one would not bow down to Haman, he purposed in his heart to destroy every last one of them. The Bible says men, women, and children. And Haman set a date 11 months later. And he goes into the king and he asks the king for permission. And basically what he says is, here's the deal, king. I want you to know that I've uncovered a plot against you. There's this people in your kingdom and there are people that are different. There are people that are difficult and they are a people that are dangerous. He never says who they are. You've got a people who are different, they're difficult, and they're dangerous. And if you'll allow me, I will pay you a billion-dollar sum of money in order to exterminate this problem in your kingdom. Now remember, King Ahasuerus has just come back from hand, having his tail handed to him by the Greeks. He's just come back from a threat to his kingdom. He doesn't want to see any more troubles, any more uprisings. And so he gives Haman his signet ring, which is the power of the kingdom, and says, do as you have said. And Haman writes into irrevocable law that 11 months later, every Jew in the Persian kingdom, 15 million strong, would be destroyed. Genocide. And at the end of chapter 3, Haman and the king sit down to have a drink together as the edict goes out into the city of Susa, the capital city, and confusion and chaos erupts in the city as they sit down to have a drink together. A sickening scene as they celebrate their plan of genocide. 
And then chapter 4. Once again, Mordecai learns of the plot, not this time against the king, but, but against his own people. He learns of what's happening, and he sends word to Esther and says, Esther, you, you've got to help us. And that's where we're going to pick up here in chapter 4. In chapter 4, and we're going to pick up right there in just a minute. But before we do so, I want to explain something to you. Because we look at this whole deal between Mordecai and Haman, and, and the confusing part is, why does Haman go so overboard in his response? Okay, so Mordecai doesn't bow down to you. I mean, yeah, take off Mordecai's head, but what does that have to do with 15 million other Jews in the kingdom of Persia? Why the overreaction? You see, it went back to a feud that had been developing for 1,500 years, and I'll keep this short, but I want to walk you through this this morning. This feud that had been going on for 1,500 years began with a guy named Abraham. You remember him, right? Father Abraham, many sons. Y'all, VBS kids know the, the song. Many sons had Father Abraham. Well, the problem was, in Genesis chapter 12, Father Abraham had zero sons. And he is in his late 70s already. And God comes to him and says, here's the deal, old Abraham. I want you to get up from where you are, you and your wife Sarah, and I want you to leave this place where you've lived your whole life I want you to leave the land of Haran, and I want you to move away to a land that I've got for you. And here's the deal, Abraham. If you'll trust me, if you'll trust me and do what I'm asking you to do, I'm going to make you three gigantic promises. It's called a covenant. A God-sized promise was made to Abraham. The covenant with Abraham was threefold. He said, here's the deal, Abraham. First of all, if you'll trust me and go to this land that I've got for you, I'm going to be your God. And you're going to be my people. And your descendants are going to be my people. My special people that I'm going to have chosen by my grace. I picked you out by my grace, not because you were especially uh, wealthy or handsome or good-looking or wise. I chose you, Abraham, by my own grace. And I'm going to extend that grace to your descendants. I'll be your God. Your people will be my people. Not only that, he says, but your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. So shall your descendants be. Now remember, at this point, Abraham's in his late 70s. His wife is only a decade behind him. They are well past childbearing years. And God says, your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And the Bible says of Abraham, he believed God. Against all odds, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, God looked upon him and said, that's right, Abraham. God gave him the gift of faith to see beyond the circumstances in front of him, which is what so many of us need. To see beyond our circumstances to a God who is greater than our circumstances. So Abraham, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. Abraham, your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And thirdly, Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. This is big news for Abraham, who's a nomad who travels from place to place just looking for some place to feed and to water his sheep and his cattle. And God says to him, I'm going to give you a land that's going to be not just for you, but for your descendants. And later on in chapter 15, God takes him up on a mountainside and he says, Abraham, look out all the land that you can see from the top of this mountain, all the land that you can see, Abraham, this is going to be yours. And once again, Abraham believed God, though he owned not an acre of it. And only a very small parcel by the end of his life, Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. You say, well, what does that have to do with Esther? Just stay with me just a minute. And so, God says to Abraham, here's the deal, Abraham, one other part of this covenant. 
that I want to add on at the end of chapter 12. He says, here's the deal, Abraham. From this point forward, everybody who blesses you, I'm going to bless. And everybody who curses you, I'm going to curse. So there it is, uh, a promise of blessings and curses. Abraham, everybody who blesses you, I'm going to bless. Everybody who curses you, I'm going to curse. And that promise is going to be for you and for your descendants, which we know as the people of Israel, the Jewish people. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And he leaves it there. Then two generations later, we find these two guys named Jacob and Esau, the grandsons of Abraham through his son Isaac. It says of Jacob that his mother, Rebekah, loved Jacob more than Esau. It says of Esau that his father loved Esau more than Jacob. They each had their favorites and they showed it. And for that reason, there was great enmity between these two brothers. They were divided the vast majority of their lives. Jacob was the deceiver who stole his brother's birthright. He stole the key to the promises that God had made to Abraham, and Esau hated him for it and sought to destroy him. Later in their lives, they were reconciled to a degree, but in Genesis chapter 36, it says that at the very end of their lives, Jacob went one way and Esau went the other, and that division set up an enmity, a division between peoples that carried down to Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, we find now Moses is leading these now numerous people, descendants of Abraham. Moses is their leader. He has led them through the plagues in Egypt. He has led them out of Egypt, freeing them from their captivity. They have crossed through the Red Sea on dry ground, and Moses is leading them. And as Moses is leading the people of Israel out of Egypt... And they spend 40 years in the wilderness under Moses' leadership before they go into that land that was promised to Abraham. As Moses is leading them, out of nowhere, there come a people called the Amalekites who come and attack the people of Israel. A completely unjustified attack. They did not provoke the Amalekites in any way. The Amalekites came up from the rear and simply sought to destroy them, to attack them. It seems out of nowhere, and yet when you trace it back, you understand this. The descendants of Jacob were these Israelites. The descendants of Amalek were, they were related to Esau. That same enmity, that same division that had existed long before was being played out in this battle. And in Exodus 17, on that day, Moses is up on the mountain. He's watching the battle between the children of Israel and the children of Amalek. He's watching these two tribes fight against one another. And the Bible said that on that day, as Moses was watching the battle, he began to pray before the Lord. And he was lifting holy hands in prayer. He was interceding for his people. And as he was praying, the Bible says that as he lifted his hands in prayer, the Israelites began to win the battle. And the battle went on. Moses continued to intercede. He continued to cry out before the Lord, asking for God's favor that they might win the war that day. But as the battle went on, Moses began to get weary. Remember, he's already fairly old by this time. He began to get weary, and his arms began to drop. And as his arms dropped, the, way, the war began to turn, and the Amalekites began to win. And Moses increased his strength and raised his hands once again to the Lord. And as he raised his hands, the, the battle turned again. And the Israelites began to win. You can read this in Exodus 17. It's an awesome picture. But as he grew weary once again, his hands began to fall. And then they got wise to it. And they got two guys, his brother Aaron and another guy named Hur, H-U-R, not H-E-R. 
Okay, they got a guy named Hur and a guy named Aaron, and they stood on either side, and this is what they did. As Moses cried out to the Lord, they stood on either side, and they held up Moses' hands, and the Bible says that the Israelites won the war that day against the Amalekites as Moses interceded on the mountain. Where was the, where was the victory won? It wasn't won in the valley, folks. The victory was won on the mountaintop where the intercession was happening. At the end of Exodus 17, God said this of the Amalekites, Because they have attacked you unjustly, because they have sought to destroy my people, I will blot their name from the face of the earth. They will be no more. I'm going to destroy all of the Amalekites. We, we struggle. I know we struggle with those things. How can a good and loving God decree the annihilation of a people group? What we need to understand this morning is that the Amalekites were no innocent bystanders. This was the justice of God on display against a people who had come up against his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we fast forward from, from the years of Moses down to the years of the first kings of Israel, and we find the first king of Israel whose name was Saul. The first king of Israel whose name was Saul. And Saul is called by God to accomplish the very promise that he made in the days of Moses that the Amalekites would be wiped out from the face of the earth. And so Saul takes his army, the army of the Israelites, up against the army of the Amalekites in his day led by a guy named King Agag. So it's Saul versus Agag. It was Jacob versus Esau, Israel versus Amalek. Now it's Saul versus Agag. And we find that in Saul's day, he was anything but faithful to the Lord. In 1 Samuel 15, it says that Saul did win the war against the Amalekites, but he stopped short of doing all that God had told him to do, and he allowed King Agag to live along with several others. He was more interested in being able to play the political game than in being fully obedient to God. And for that, he lost his crown. Because he did not follow through in full obedience. We, we tell our kids at home all the time. Partial obedience is disobedience. Parents, you know that truth, don't you? Well, I meant to take out the trash. But you didn't. And the house still stinks. Okay, you, you know this, right? Even the best of intentions are not full obedience. And Saul fell short of full obedience in his day. And allowed the Amalekites to continue to live, which sounds like mercy, but was really just a disobedience to God. Which leads down to what we find here in Esther chapter 3 and 4. Because Haman, it says, was an Agagite, which means he was a descendant of King Agag. Mordecai, as we learned in chapter 2, was a descendant of Kish, who was the father of Saul. And so this age-old war that began with the covenant that God set up with Abraham, those you bless, I'll bless, those you curse, I'll curse. Two generations later, we see Jacob and Esau divided from one another, carried on down to the battle between Israel and Amalek, carried on down to the battle between Saul and Agag, now carried down into the year with Mordecai and Haman in 475 B.C. These two come head to head, this age-long feud 1,500 years strong, is now being played out on the scene of history and the God who is sovereign over all things is working it all for His good and pleasing purpose. So with all that background, and I know it's a lot, we find Mordecai calling out to Esther and saying, you've got to help us. 
Haman has set out to annihilate all of our people. It's time for you to stand up and do something about it. Let's pick up in Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. You'd stand with me in honor of God's word if you're able to do so. There's a messenger here named Hathak who is passing messages back and forth between Mordecai and Esther. And it says, And then Esther spoke to Hathak, and he commanded him to go to Mordecai and to say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. And what is that one law? To be put to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. So it's been a month since the king's called me into his presence. In verse 12, when they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther in this way, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And then here's this famous phrase. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. You can be seated. Father, as we walk through these scriptures this morning, God, I want to make two simple prayers for us. One, would you... Help us to weigh our defining moments on the scales we find here. Those moments when we must choose whether we will remain fearfully silent or whether we will courageously speak for our faith in God. Those moments when we're so tempted to compromise, so tempted to hide our faith, so tempted to turn away from the God who's been faithful to us. But Lord, would you also help us to weigh out a greater defining moment? In fact, let's say this morning the greatest of defining moments is mirrored here, at least in part. Help us to see it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verses 10 and 11 there, scriptures begin with the precept of death. The death of 15 million people has been ordered by one simple command of the king. And it's easy to think, well, you just changed the law, right? But you've got to understand that, that Persian law was irrevocable. It could not be changed. Once a law was instituted, it had to be carried out. Even the king himself could not change a law that he made. And so we find here this, this precept, this law, 
that, that is enacting the death of 15 million people, including this guy Mordecai who ticked off Haman who instituted the law. And of course it goes back 1,500 years and, and all that had laid up to that moment, this enmity between these two people groups. The sins of the fathers, as the scripture talks about. He says, the, the fathers ate sour grapes and the children's teeth were set on edge. And we see this, don't we? Not that children are, are held accountable for the sins of their fathers, but that they are greatly affected by the sins of their fathers. It's passed down generation to generation. We see the effects of sin rampant in our lives. We see it here so clearly. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The due result, the follow-up, the, the, the cost that's paid because of sin is death. And we see it laid out here. And Esther here is called upon to become the mediator in this moment. She's the only one, this little Jewish girl who just happened to come to the throne of Persia. She just happens to become the wife of the most powerful man in the world. Now she is set between her husband and her people in terms of nationality and ethnicity. Between her worldly husband and between the people of faith that God chose all the way back in the days of Abraham. And she says here in these verses, Mordecai, I know what you're asking me to do, but all the odds seem to be against her. She says, listen, everybody knows, everybody knows that you don't come before the king without being summoned. In fact, history tells us there were only seven individuals in the entire kingdom, seven advisors to King Ahasuerus who were permitted to come before the king without being summoned. Anyone else, and of course Haman was one of those seven, but anyone else that would come before the king without being called to do so would immediately on the spot be put to death by the men who guarded the king night and day. And she says, and we know, we know that the only, the only way out of that death sentence the only way out of that death sentence is if the king happens to feel especially merciful and extends his golden scepter as a sign of mercy to the one who has come unbidden before the king. But Esther says, here's the deal. I thought I was in the king's favor, but here's the deal. I've not come before him for 30 days. And without getting too graphic here, let me just say this. King Ahasuerus was not the kind of guy who's known to sleep alone for a month. She's not been called to come in and spend time with her husband for 30 days, and she just is assuming by that, I'm on the outs for whatever reason. Again, this is a fickle king. You see, Esther feared the law of a fickle king. But she is demonstrating for us a greater one, a greater one that we know as Jesus, who didn't fear the law of a fickle king. He came to fulfill the law of our faithful king. She, she is portraying a picture for us of what Christ would come to do not even 500 years removed from Esther's day. That as Jesus stepped onto the scene of history, He was coming not to deal with the king of Persia. He was coming to do the business of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and in one of His first teachings, He said this, He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's what he was so often accused of. The Pharisees were constantly saying, what's the deal with this guy? He seems to teach the word of God, but he seems to live contrary to it. 
He doesn't obey the Sabbath. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. There seems to be so many things in his life. They accused him of being a hypocrite because it seemed as though his life didn't line up with the law of God. And they were all about the law of God. Not realizing that salvation was never meant to come through the law. Salvation was never meant to come through the law. The law was simply meant to show us that we needed a Savior. And so Jesus said, don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. No, I came to fulfill them. I came to show you the way that you were supposed to live but never could because you were sinners. I came to fulfill all the things. That, it, the problem wasn't with the law. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the problem wasn't with the law. God's law is good and it is perfect. We look at Psalm 19 and we see all these attributes of the law of God. And it's like the finest of gold. It's like honey that's sweet in our mouths. The law of God is good. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with our sin. The problem is that we don't keep the law of God. And Jesus said, I came to do what you could never do for yourselves. To live the life that you could never live because you chose sin rather than obedience to God. Because you chose to rebel against Him rather than to walk in righteousness. I came to fulfill this law. And so we see this picture. Secondly, in verses 12 through 14, we see this promise of deliverance. This promise of deliverance. In verse 14, this is the strongest statement of God's providence probably in the whole Bible. And we hear this verse, and I'm going to read it to us again there, uh, Esther 4, 14. Mordecai says to Esther, I mean, after she says, if I go before the king, he's probably going to kill me. Mordecai says, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. If that's not a statement of faith, I don't know what it is. He doesn't mention the name of God here. But where, where's it going to come from? If you don't rise up, if you keep silent, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is the providence of a sovereign God. What do, what do you mean by that? Here's a definition of providence to help us out today. Providence is the means by which God sovereignly directs all things. And I should have capitalized in big bold letters that word all. He sovereignly directs all things toward the worthy purpose of His good, pleasing, and perfect will. It's Romans 8.28. And we know that God orchestrates all things, that He, that he orders all things, that He does all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. And so we see God's providence here. And Mordecai says, here's the deal, Esther. You can keep quiet if you want. You, you can try to hide behind your crown. Remember, she has not yet revealed that she even is a Jew. No one knows that piece of information just yet and won't for another couple of chapters. He says, you can hide out here. You can, you can hide your faith. You can hide and, and watch your people be destroyed but know that God is going to deliver your people whether you stand up or not. That's a word of faith, folks. You see, the truth of God's providence is this. God is going to accomplish what He intends to accomplish whether we choose to join Him in that plan and purpose or not. I love the way that Brian Gregory put it. He says, if we are not willing to do what God has called us to do in our defining moments, then God will still accomplish His purpose through alternative means. That's what, that's what He's saying here. But we will miss out on being a part of what He's doing. 
And some of us in this room, we wear regrets looking back on moments when we, we know that God was calling us to do something, whether it was to have a conversation with someone who had not yet come to faith in Christ. Or whatever that, that situation was, when you look back and you see, man, I really wish that I had been faithful in that moment. And yet so many times God steps in and steps around those of us who stand in His way or try to hide behind the scenes somewhere. And He accomplishes His purposes anyway. A.W. A. Tozer used this, this uh, analogy of God's providence. He said, here's the deal. He said, the entire course of history is like a cruise ship. Okay, just stay with me for a minute, and I'll stay with A.W. Tozer. He, he was talking about this. He said, the entire course of history is like a cruise ship. Our secretary, Cinda, would love this. She's on one right now. He said, here's the deal. In his day, cruise ships, the majority of them, they would depart from New York City, and they would sail to Liverpool, England. That's what he was referring to. And he says, imagine the course of history like this cruise ship. It embarks from one place, and it will disembark at another place. You've got a beginning point and an ending point. And all along the way, there are, there are waves, there are all kinds of things going on, and the people on board the ship have a certain amount of freedom to do what they want to do. You can eat what you want to eat, you can go to bed when you want to go to bed. He said, but here's the deal. The one thing they don't have the freedom to do is to change the destination of the ship. Do you see it? What he was saying is this. God has a plan and a purpose for all of history down into the intricate details of our lives. Nothing escapes his notice. Jesus said he even pays attention to the needs of the sparrows that they not go hungry. And he's saying, he's talking about from the least to the greatest. Here. He's saying if God cares about feeding the sparrows, then how much more does he care about you? And so A.W. Tozer was saying that in, on this course of history that God is leaving from one point and, and arriving at a different point, he knows all along exactly where he's going. And the people on the ship have a certain amount of freedom to do what they want to do, but they have no freedom to change the end goal. That belongs to the captain of the ship. That belongs to God. I hope that helps you. Many of us struggle with this relationship between God's sovereignty and being in control of all things and our freedom as human beings. How do those two things work together? It's a mystery. We can't fully understand it. But the best thing that we can do is trust in the sovereignty of God. You see, Mordecai believed God's promise. He says there, if you don't rise up, somebody else will. And what was he trusting in? You see, he was looking all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when sin first entered into the world and God gave the very first promise of the deliverer. You remember, he, he's pitting the, the snake against the woman at this point, the serpent who had led her into sin, and he says, here's the deal. He says, serpent, you're going to strike the heel of her descendant. And it was singular. Descendant, not descendants. Though oftentimes we do feel stricken by Satan. He said, you're going to strike the heel of her descendant, but he is going to crush your head. You're going to give him a bite, but he's going to take your head off. Folks, that gets rid of a lot of the sad little pictures of Jesus that we have in our church culture today. And it reminds us that he is a warrior who has come not just to put the devil in a box, but to take off his head. To destroy him, to crush him, that is what he has come to do. 
And we see this pictured in Jesus' own words in John chapter 6. He said, I came down from heaven. Good reminder for us. He was not of this earth. He came down from heaven. Why? Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Who is that? Two verses later, he explains it. For this is the will of my Father, the one who sent me, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus said, that's why I've come. This is what it means to crush the head of the serpent. The cross, which looks like the greatest defeat in all of history, is really the greatest victory in all of history. This was the crushing of the serpent who brought sin and death into the world. Jesus sealed it once and for all. When he said, it is finished, that was laying his heel on the head and applying the pressure. It's done. Sin has been defeated, death has been overcome, and he proved it three days later when he of his own accord stepped out of the tomb, rose from the dead. Before we finish this morning, I want you to see this. In verses 15 through 17, we see a glimpse of the perishing of the deliverer. Esther says, okay, right, I get it. Maybe I am here on the throne for such a time as this. Which, by the way, just speaks a word to us. That, that job that you're in right now that you just hate, you're already despising the thought of getting up and having to go to work tomorrow? How different would it be if we began to live according to Esther 4.14 and believing that the sovereign God of the universe who orders all things according to his end goal and purpose puts you right where you are, when you are, how you are for such a time as this. Is he unaware that you were born when you were born? In the country in which you were born into? In the family which you were born into? Has he not, as the Proverbs say, ordered your steps? Ordained all of your days before one of them came to be? And yet we spend so much of our lives complaining about the places in which we find ourselves. And Esther 4.14 cries out to us and says, Begin to live for such a time as this. That He has placed you in the home in which you live, in the job in which you live, around the people with which you live, though they may grate on your last nerve for His kingdom purposes. And if you could step back and see what He's doing on the cruise ship of history, you'd stop complaining and begin to rejoice in the God who has it all under wraps, that He is working all things for the good of His people and for the glory of His name. It would change our perspective if we would live Esther 4.14. We see the perishing of the deliverer. In verse 16, they begin to fast. As the king and, Haman, king and Haman are feasting over what they see as a victory, the Jews begin to fast. Fasting implies intense intercessory prayer. Abstaining from food both day and night, as it says here. That was an unusual fast, by the way. Most of the time in Old Testament fasting, it was just during the daylight hours that they would abstain. But she says, no, three days, day and night, don't eat or drink anything. This was, this was a very strict fast. And during this fast, she says, and we're going to cry out. And the, the, what's implied here, you don't see it. She doesn't say it. But what's implied is we're, we're going to cry out to God. We're going to ask Him to deliver us as He's done so many times before. Did He, did he not bring us out of Egypt? Did he not lead us through the Red Sea? Did he not feed us day in and day out for 40 years in the wilderness? 
Did he not provide for us judges that would raise up against our enemies and, and lead us for those 400 years? Did he not provide for us kings, though many of them were, were not much to think of? Did he not provide us with kings that would lead us? Has he not led us all the way down through this day, even through the Babylonian captivity, even through all that we've been through? Has God not been faithful? And folks, when you look back on your life, that's what I want to encourage you to see. Has God not been faithful? Can you not see what He has provided for you? Can you not see how He has led you down to this day? And He knows every day after this one as well. So they began to fast. And at the end of that, Esther made this covenant before them that she would risk her life to save her people. But she is just a vague reflection of a greater reality. You see, Esther said, I will go to the king in three days, and if I perish, I perish. That's a great word of courage, isn't it? I love Esther for that moment. I mean, this is one of those gladiator-type moments. This is brave heart. You know, I'm going to charge in here to the king. If he takes off my head, so be it. But notice the if. And would you see today that there was one much greater who would step into the scene of history some 480 years after that moment, who didn't come saying, if I perish, I perish. But he came saying, when I perish, others won't have to. He was the one who said, for God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. He's the same one who said in John chapter 12, but for this purpose I have come. For such a time as this, this is the greatest statement right here, John chapter 12, for this purpose I have come to this hour. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And if you were to stop there, you'd go, it sounds like when he gets put up on everybody's shoulders on a parade. But it says right after that, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. From a merely human perspective, this makes absolutely no sense to us. How is there victory in death? And yet we know so clearly from the scriptures, the gospel teaches us that death is conquered by death. That Jesus became our substitute. He took the cross that should have been ours. He was laid in the tomb that should have been ours. We deserved it because of our sin. He who knew no sin of his own became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took our sin and gave us salvation. He took our darkness and gave us light. He took our death and gave us life. And share with you one last thing as we come to the end this morning. The edict went out before the foundation of the world, not from a fickle king against an innocent people, but from the faithful king against rebellious sinners. Because of who we are, death is deserved. What standing have we before his perfect justice? How can we hope to find mercy? Would he extend his scepter to us? Then unbelievably, unmistakably, the faithful king does the unthinkable. 
He steps down from his throne and dons the apparel of abject poverty. More than reaching out to the downtrodden, he becomes one of them. The edict brought death, and deservedly so. It must be carried out. And so the king of kings takes up the cross of sinners. An infinite debt could only be paid by a sacrifice of infinite worth. There was not the possibility of his perishing, only the promise of it. The righteous judge took upon himself our punishment. In his mercy, he took upon himself the death that should have been ours. And in his grace, he gave us the life that we could never have earned. He conquered death by death and proved it by his resurrection from the dead. He is our perfect mediator. He is our magnificent Savior. He is our faithful King. As we come to the end today, we want to give you the opportunity to remember what he did for you. I'm going to close out today with what we call the Lord's Supper. These are, on either side of me, some simple pieces of, of bread and a cup of grape juice. But they symbolize for something, us for something so much greater. They symbolize this bread, the body that was broken for us, his body the body of the perfect Son of God. His blood that was shed for us is what's symbolized in this cup. His blood was spilled so that yours wouldn't have to be spilled. His blood was spilled so that you could be forgiven of all your sins. Your slate wiped clean, clothed in His righteousness. He purchased all of that for you. And we are so quick to forget. We are so quick to forget that the greatest defining moment in all of history came not in Esther chapter 4. But it came on a hill called Calvary where the perfect Son of God willingly laid His body on an old rugged cross and allowed those in attendance that day to drive the nails into His wrists and into His feet. His body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. He took the place that should have been ours and gave us the place that never should have been ours. The night before he gave his life, the Apostle Paul records in 1 Corinthians 11 as our deacons come and prepare to, to lead us in this. Apostle Paul says this, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we'll invite you during this last song this morning to participate. We invite you to these tables. Just as a matter of explaining how we're going to do this, if, if you would, if you, if you would come up these center aisles here and then make your way across the front where the deacons will have these elements that you can can take and you'll exit back out the outside aisles back to your seats 
We want you to know this morning that it, you don't have to be a member of our church to participate in this this morning. The scriptures only indicate in our understanding that you need to be a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If He is your Savior, we invite you to His table this morning. If there be anything that's staying between you and Him this morning, we encourage you even in these moments to confess that if there's a broken relationship in your life that needs to be mended, would you covenant before the Lord right now that you will go and you will deal with that today? Not tomorrow, not next week, not a year from now, but you'll do business today on behalf of what the Lord has done for you. He reconciled you to God, so whatever broken relationship you're dealing with is small in comparison with that. As we come to this table, we remember His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us, and we are proclaiming His death until He comes again to take us home. Would you stand with me and let's pray together as we prepare for the table this morning. Father God, I pray over us today. That as we take hold of this little morsel of bread, and as we dip it into this cup, and as we taste what is before us, that we would remember your word that says, and taste and see that the Lord, He is good. That we would remember that you are so good to us that you took a cross in our place. That you poured out your blood on our behalf. That you purchased our salvation, not in part, but the whole. We do this as an act of worship, an act of remembrance, and an act of renewing in us the call upon our lives not to sit back in silence, but to step forward by faith and to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of the darkness of our sin and into His marvelous light. As we come to this table, Lord, would You empower us for the task before us? to proclaim your goodness to a lost and dying world, to stand up as Esther did, even if it means our perishing, would we see that there is life immortal purchased for us, given to us by your grace. May we rejoice in that life today, even as we come to this table. In Jesus' name. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Lord, in these moments, we give you praise. That you took our sin debt upon yourself.
and instead of rejecting us like we deserved. You came with scars in your hands, with the mark of the spear in your side, and you courageously carried us to your table, the table of the King of Kings, no longer fearing coming before the King, we're called to come with confidence. Confidence not in ourselves or what we might have achieved or done. We come with confidence in the One who has done it all for us. Confidence in Christ. Confidence in our King Jesus who purchased for us that which we could never have afforded on our own. Our actions brought death. And His brought us life. And Lord, we give You praise today. And we pray that You might fill our mouths with this Gospel. That as we go out from this place, that we would not hide our faith in You, but that we would proclaim it. Lord, even if it costs our lives, may we know it to be absent from this body. We'll be to be present with the Lord. May we know Your faithful promises down through the generations of Your people. And may we walk according to Your ways. And in everything, say to God, be the glory, great things He has done. Thank You for carrying us to Your table today, Lord. Now carry us through our week by Your grace and for Your glory. We pray in Jesus' magnificent name. Amen. Let's be dismissed this morning. God bless you.